Welcome to Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, a podcast dedicated to conversations with members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints here in North Texas. I'm your host, Eric Egan. Our guest on this episode is Reva Willis, a member of the Hearst Texas Stake who is preparing to celebrate her 100th birthday on December 7th. Reva, thank you for joining us on our podcast. Well, this is kind of an exciting event at age 100. <laughs> I, I didn't think I'd get a special interview for it, but this, this is kind of fun. Well, it's quite an accomplishment when you consider everything that's happened since 1920, and here you are getting ready to celebrate your 100th birthday. I think a lot of our listeners would be interested to hear some of your perspective as you've grown up and experienced a lot of the big milestones in American history over the last hundred years. What are some of your memories as you look back growing up as you did since you were born in 1920? It depends on the <laughs> on the age. Uh, when I was six, I just uh, was a little girl on the farm, helped take care of the little lambs when they were born. My father was a sheep man with thousands of sheep and every spring we'd have some little orphan lambs so I would take care of them. That was growing up in Utah? In South Jordan, Utah, about one mile north of the Jordan River Temple. Which certainly wasn't there then. No, no there, there was a, a house on the hill where my grandparents lived for years. So it was just country uh, area, that's all it was. So you grew up in the Salt Lake City area back in a time when it looked much different than it does today. You were raising sheep in a place now that's, that's very much more in the city. I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes in a lot of different ways over the years. What was it like to grow up in a time, I think a lot of us think it was a simpler time. Does that ring true to you or were things difficult back in your younger years as well? That was how everybody was. Everybody was on a farm there. If they didn't have a lot of sheep like my dad, they had animals and they, they grew alfalfa. And there was a big irrigation canal not too far that my ancestors built, helped build when the pioneers first arrived. The canal is still there. Wow. After all of these years, the pioneers built that, and it was built yes. to last, clearly. Yes. So they could get water from Utah Lake up onto the farms. Now, if I am uh, remembering my history correctly, when you were born in 1920, the president of the church would have been Heber J. Grant. Is that right? That's true. Okay. That's true. He, he was there a long time, but I remember him. And by the time you turned 10 years old, the nation had entered the Great Depression. What do you remember about that? Yeah, that was a bad time because my father bought a new farm in Riverton. And we moved there. And shortly after that, the Depression hit. He lost. We lost the farm. He lost mm -hmm. a lot of his sheep. And it, it was really hard on, on him and all of us because... Our, our way of life changed immensely then. What kind of impact did that have on you? Losing that would have been a big deal. Did your father have to find other kinds of work? Well, I think we all just took it in stride. You know, it, uh, we moved, we rented, we had to sell the farm and moved into a, 
a house. It was a nice house in Riverton, and uh, I was closer to school, which was good. And uh, I went to the Riverton uh, Junior High School. And as you went through the Depression and came out of that on the other side, did your lifestyle change yet again? Well, not really, because my my father wasn't doing the same uh, type of work. And we eventually moved back to South Jordan into a home that had belonged to an aunt. I don't know the financial uh, set up, but we moved into this. It was a nice house. And we had one room that uh, was really a dining room, but had a lot of bookcases around the wall. My father didn't have a lot of education, but he loved to read, and he passed that on to me so Mm. I could pick any book uh, I wanted off the wall. He gave me, during the Depression, He offered me $1 to read A Tale of Two Cities. (laughs) And uh, so that that was part of my education, just challenging myself with books. And it sounds like you had plenty to choose from. Right. Well, as time went on, you, you made it through the Great Depression and eventually, I think the other next big milestone in United States history and really world history, is the Second World War. Well, we've, we've got to go through a, a few things before then. Uh, I met a good-looking guy, and he was getting to ready to go on a mission. And I said, that's fine. My life's goal was to marry a returned missionary, so he's got to go on a mission before I'm going to marry him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he went, came to Texas, believe it or not. So he came to Texas, and meanwhile, you were just kind of waiting for him to get home? Uh, Yeah, we wrote every week. We each wrote a letter every week. He left Salt Lake the 19th of October, which is this, this week was the anniversary. And two years from that uh, date, he telephoned me, which was not according to the rules, He called from the mission office, mission area, and asked me to marry him over the phone. His father had received the engagement ring that Ralph had been uh, paying for on his mission with his mission money. He sent the ring to his father, and his father came to visit my parents, which was nearby. And he put my engagement ring on my finger on October 1941. (laughs) What a great story. So he he wasn't going to wait till he got home. He wanted to make sure that you were going to be his when he got home. And he wanted to get me all nailed down so nobody else got me. (laughs) With a little help from his dad. Right, right. That's fantastic. Did he come home soon after that? That was October 41. Pearl Harbor happened December 7th, as you know, 1941. He had been out, of course, the two years more. So all the missionaries that had been out two years or more were sent home immediately. 
he got home on December 21st, just before Christmas. And uh, believe it or not, we were married three weeks later. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So that would have been uh, like January of 1942. Right. I was 21 when Pearl Harbor happened. Exactly 21 on your birthday. Exactly. Well, that's wonderful. So so there you are married at 21 with a return missionary, just barely home. And where did your life go from there? Well, he had to, had to get uh, either in some military service or get in school. And he worked out both. He got in the Navy and they allowed married men to be in the Navy technically and they could go to school, but they had to pay their own way. The arm, the Navy did not pay for the school. Hmm. So I continued my job that I had, and his father helped. And we got him through school with high honors, and he graduated on time in 1943. The war was still going then. And you were working during that time as well? Right. I was I was putting the food on the table so he could study and get good grades, right? Great teamwork there. So when he graduated and the, the war was still going, uh, but was toward the end by then, and what was the next phase of your lives together? Companies across the country were going to all the colleges and getting, signing up all the engineers that were graduating. So he signed up with Curtis Wright, and they, he had two, three choices in the U.S. to work. We, we picked Columbus, Ohio, and were there for three years. He was never in the Navy, but he was building Navy planes. So off to Columbus, and where did you go after that? <laughs> well, when the war ended, you had to find something to do. His boss found him a job in Wichita, Kansas, they were building, they were trying to build round houses out of aluminum. Hmm. If you've ever heard of Buckminster Fuller, the, he's a famous engineer. The, he he uh, designed the geodetic dome. Hmm. And he was in Wichita hiring people to build these houses. So we went there for a while, but then the government decided they needed the aluminum. They couldn't have it for the houses. Mm. So from there, we went back to Utah and got engineering work there. I had one baby in Ohio and one baby in Kansas. So <laughs> then we, add, we were able to add this uh, Belgian fellow legally into our family. We, we were legal, his legal sponsors when he came to America. And how old was he at that point? He was 16. He was the same age as right in between my two children. So age-wise, he, he worked. It worked fine. But he couldn't go to college in Belgium. They wouldn't allow him because of some problem. So he had to get out of Belgium to get an education. And you provided that home for him? Yes, we had to provide a home and make sure he was taken care of. He finally graduated from BYU and went on and got a, a Ph.D. in Northwestern in Illinois. And what about your two children? Well, uh, 
Arlene couldn't wait to get married. She went to BYU and found this good-looking guy, and uh, so she, she got married and started having children, and he got his education, and she did some education, too. Over the years, she got an architectural technical degree and designed from scratch houses, and she's got some beautiful drawings that she did with her technical ability. Of course, she's, she's a real artist, so she she went from one art thing to another. That's what she's, that's what she's done. Her big thing now is quilts. If she, if she likes you well enough, you may get a quilt. <laughs> and you have a son as well? Yeah, Brian got an engineering degree. Well, after he went to Peru on a mission and then got his engineering degree from BYU. He's an electrical engineer. And he's done a lot of electrical wiring in my house here. I'm sure he has. And you have some grandchildren also? Yeah, let's see. We had eight grandchildren. The last count, I had 17 great-grandchildren. They're scattered from North Carolina to New York, wherever. California. I, I don't visit them very much. I just send them a card on their birthdays with the money. <laughs> $17 for 17 years. Whatever, you know. That is great. What a great posterity. That's a lot to be proud of. I should tell you about my church calling if you want to hear it. That would be great. I have taught classes in all the auxiliaries primary, Sunday school, young women's Relief Society. And I've been a, a Relief Society president in two different states and a primary president in a couple of states. I uh, have t- had technical training as uh, conducting music uh, in Salt Lake and uh, led choirs and choruses all, all around the country. And one of my last callings here in my ward was as the ward chorister for leading sacrament meeting, and that was only about five years ago. <laughs> so I, I can still do it. And I heard that about 20 years ago, when you were just 80, that you were called to serve as a young women's president in your ward. Right. I, I was 80 years old at that time. I, I wasn't ready for that one. You know, some, some you can anticipate that was that was kind of a shock, but I got through it. I went to girls' camp and youth conference, did the whole thing. Uh, during our marriage, we, my husband and I did a number of callings together. Uh, in, 19, in the 60s, we lived in Colorado. And we were called to be the MIA supervisors for the Western States mission. And we uh, drove from Denver out to Kansas, Nebraska, Texas to district conferences and sponsored youth conferences and brought the young people into the Denver area. That, that was, was a big project, but we had a good time doing that. When the Dallas Temple opened, we were called to be coordinators to get uh, the uh, people to serve 
as guides when they opened the temple. So, so we did that, and then we served in the Family History Center together for a number of years. And then we served in the Dallas Temple as temple workers at the same time. And uh, I, I was in that job off and on for about 20 years. So it, it was a good experience. How wonderful to be able to serve right alongside your husband for many years, it sounds right. like. Yeah, he'd, he'd kind of light up when it, I'd come down the hall <laughs> in, in my white dress looking like an angel, you know. <laughs> That's a wonderful vision. I love it. Well, so you guys made your way to North Texas in, uh, in about what year? That was 1981. We were in Houston. And in all our moves, well, I should mention we lived in we lived in twelve states, and uh, I have visited personally all fifty states, uh, mostly with my husband. But I went to, uh, to Hawaii with my son instead of my husband. So I've I've been to all fifty states, and they are all wonderful. America is a wonderful place to live, and I'm glad the Lord sent me here to be an American, also to be in the church. Uh, I've had many blessings over the years right now. My big one is having my daughter nearby taking care of me. Isn't that wonderful? I recently saw that the average life expectancy of an American woman is 79 years old. And so you, you have outlasted that considerably. I think I broke the rule on that one. <laughs> yeah. You've outlived that by quite a ways. Do you yeah. have any secrets for living a long life? What do you think's helped you to do this? Yeah, different people have asked me that. Uh, I, I, well, your genes are a factor, you know, what, what, what your body, what your body does and reacts to, but I don't get upset over little things in life. I kind of roll with the punches. If it's you know, if it happens, you know, you you go on, and if you have to change your direction, you do it. But I think my uh, uh, longevity probably stems from. Well, various factors. I should mention I had pioneer ancestors that were at far west Missouri, uh, Nauvoo, winter quarters, and were in Salt Lake Valley, uh, some of them by 1850. So Mm -hmm. they were among the early pioneers there. Are you familiar with the area of Harriman? Yes. Okay, I had a a great-grandfather who was sent there with some other men by Brigham Young to build a fort to uh, protect the people from the Indians. Mm. His name was John J. Stocking, which is my maiden name. And he he went there with another man and uh, helped build Harriman. I'm sure at that time Harriman was clear out in the desert somewhere, wasn't it? <laughs> and uh, there's, a, there's a monument in Harriman with his name on it. 
Well, that's wonderful to have such great, strong pioneer ancestry and right. you've yeah. been able to, to carry on and have such a wonderful posterity yourself. This one grandmother who was in far west, they were in their wagons. They couldn't get housing because of the mobs. She had, I think, her 10th child in a wagon in far west in the winter of 1839. She went on, went to Utah, had her 15th child in Utah, the last. 15th. <laughs> and she's buried in the South Jordan Cemetery. They really experienced things uh, in those days beyond what we've been asked to do. I am glad I didn't come to earth during that time. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad the Lord saved me for a little later. You and me both. What's interesting, though, is you were born at a time that was right on the cusp of some tremendous advancements in society and in our culture oh, here. Yeah. What are some of those things that you most appreciate as, as you've seen things change over time? We had the first telephone, I think, in South Jordan. My father was made a bishop when I was about six years old. And so they uh, somehow he got a telephone so he could communicate with anybody else who happened to have one. And then he, he got his first car about that time. So that was a big deal. A telephone, a car running water so you don't have to go outside to the well and carry a bucket <laughs> inside. But you remember doing that? Uh, well, I, my seeing my, my father, my mother, and my brothers, my brothers were about 10 years older than I was. So they, they did all. I just, I, I was just a kid then, and I, my job was feeding the lambs, maybe fully pulling a few leaves, weeds in the garden. Oh, we, we had fun on uh, when they irrigated the lawn. My brother, little brother and I would splash around. <laughs> oh, we, we did go to the canal sometimes with when my mother would take us. Are there any other advancements that uh, you think of technology or other things that you've come to appreciate? We had a little radio, as I remember, just a very small one, but that that wasn't very advanced either. When, when TV came, uh, that was a long way down the road. <laughs> As you look around today at just the state of the world and, and what's going on, and here we are still in the, in the midst of a global pandemic, as you look around, do you look back and see another period of time that was particularly challenging for the world or for you personally? Well, probably World War II was uh, the big, big area that was that was sad for a lot of people in fact I, my younger brother was killed during a training flight with his airplane and uh, 10 men he was uh, going out from greenville south carolina and an engine went out and uh, they were, at that time, coming through the area of Atlanta, Georgia. And they flew round and round to get the fuel out of the plane because they knew they were going to crash. Mm. And so he crashed near Atlanta. And, of course, all, all 10 were lost. And that was doubly sad because it happened on my 
mother's birthday, January oh. 10th, 1945. My, my little boy, baby, was uh, about nine months old then, and uh, you, you weren't traveling during the war unless it was very important, but I, I did not get to Utah for his funeral. He is, he is also buried in South Jordan with nearby parents. Well, I can see how that would have been an especially hard time, not only to lose a brother like that, but, but just also the other sacrifices and difficulties that went along with such a widespread right. war. All in all, I've had a very good life. Like I say, when, when problems come, you, you have to uh, go to the Lord, get help and just pick up the pieces and go on. Well, it certainly sounds like your faith in God has played a primary role in your life from the very start. Tell us a little bit about how your faith has sustained you. I just finished uh, Gordon B. Hinckley's book, Ten Things That the World Needs, and his last one was uh, faith. You've got to have faith in the Lord faith in yourself and the people around you and just kind of stay on stay on the track like brother Ballard said stay in the boat you know you got to stay in the boat go go to church we always went to church every Sunday and uh, we tried to follow the the Lord's plan we were in, uh, among the places we lived was Baltimore, Maryland, and my husband's work gave out there, and he didn't know what his job was going to be. He was mm. an engineer. And at the end of the year, we sat down and figured all our tithing. We still had a house in Utah we were renting, so we needed to figure the rental amount. So we got it all figured out. And we owed $116, which was quite a bit. And we decided, yes, we were going to pay that $116 and let uh, the Lord take care of us. So we paid the tithing. A couple of days later, the company said they had a company in Denver, Colorado that they wanted him to come and work for him. There was to be a raise, and the amount was $116. And <laughs> said, gee, if I'd have known that, I would have paid more tithing. <laughs> well, what a blessing. Yeah. So that's how we got, we got to Colorado and stayed there about 10 years. That was a good job. He was with the Martin Marietta, the ones that put the men, helped put the moon, men on the moon, man on the moon. He had uh, church people that we uh, drove out to these states to with a mission. And this one man says, they will never get to the moon. And my husband says, yes, they will. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right. Well, this is wonderful to visit with you, Reva, and to get a sense for your life and the goodness that you bring, and, and what a blessing I'm sure you've been to so many. As we wrap up here, is there any word of advice that you would give to the rising generation today? 
just keep uh, keep close to the Lord and do what He wants you to do. I should mention that my husband was a writer of ancient space, I call it, and he wrote one book, got it uh, cleared with the uh, Library of Congress, and he kept working on this other one for years and years. And before he died, he said, I didn't finish my book. So about three years after he died, I got all of his material that he'd collected over the years and says, I am going to do this. For three months, I did nothing but go over those uh, papers. I wrote a book called The, The Unbelievable Journey, going from Earth to way out in space to all the planets and visiting the planet with the Lord of the universe. And uh, so I got it all done, and uh, it was about uh, 100 pages, I guess. And I typed them all myself, sent it out to the Library of Congress to see if they would (laughs) record it and accept it. They did. So I have two books that I've typed on that are in the Library of Congress. And if you ever get to my house, (laughs) I'll show you the, the unbelievable journey. It's hard to believe, but he he had it figured out. Well, that's great that you could help finish that project for him. Right. Well, Reva, thank you very much for being a guest on our podcast. You've lived a wonderful life and have a lot to celebrate here. Coming up December 7th will be your 100th birthday. So I'll wish you an early happy birthday and uh, wish you well. And uh, thank you once again for being a guest on this podcast. Thank you for having me. Our guest on this episode has been Reva Willis. I am inspired by her 100 years of faithful living, and I enjoyed hearing about her life as well as her perspective, having lived through a most interesting century in the history of the world. And her advice to always stay close to the Lord is something I will definitely take to heart. For Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, I'm Eric Egan.